0: You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultonberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. Today, we're talking about coronavirus in schools. The virus is forcing educators to reimagine school as K through 12 students face even more uncertainty this fall. The big questions that are top of mind, how can we balance student safety while still providing effective teaching? How do we manage the equity gap students face? And has anything positive come from the chaos students and teachers are dealing with? Erin Anderson is a professor in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at DU. She's been spending a lot of time gathering data and thinking about these questions over the past few months. We talked with her about the big lessons learned from the sudden shutdown in the spring, and how all of this could change the school system moving forward. The best place to start is with summer learning loss, what that typically means, and how it has changed with coronavirus.
1: Yeah, um, so summer learning loss, which is also sometimes referred to as summer slide, has been um, a, re- a pretty well-researched topic for about 30 years now, and what they have found is um, during those months of the summer, people can lose up to two months of learning um, that, they, that they accumulated during the school year, and that this gap um, is much larger for low income families than it is for other families. Um, and this gap is in both reading, which has been the biggest focus, but it also in math. Um, and there's been some speculation that up to two thirds of the ninth grade um, gap in learning between students is explained by this summer learning loss. And so where that's really relevant um, to our current situation with COVID, is that we went into crisis remote learning um, for the last couple months of the academic year, and um, from all reports that looked very different um, across families, across schools, and across communities. Uh, and so there's a there's a real concern that that summer learning loss um, is going to be even more amplified by those couple months of um, remote learning.
0: There were definitely a lot of lessons learned back in March um, when schools kind of had to make the shift quickly to remote. Some schools just decided to shut down altogether for the year. You were just recently working on a national study, kind of looking at the big takeaways from what we learned in the spring. Can you just talk a little bit about that study?
1: Yeah, so there's a group of uh, 16 researchers from 16 different states um, who are each interviewing about seven principals, so we'll have over 100 principals in the sample, um, and really just asking them in real time about what it looked like those first couple weeks when they first realized that they were gonna be home for remote learning, what it looked like to settle into that remote learning for a few months, and what they knew about what was gonna happen
0: in the future. What did they say about the biggest challenges that they faced in the spring? Uh, Yeah, so the biggest challenges off the bat, so many were logistical. So it
1: was things like we were talking about just getting what um, families had in the school building to the families, whether that be medications, whether that be the resources they need to learn, um, then getting them all the technology that they needed. Uh, And many many leaders have really recognized um, through that process how many of their families didn't have access to technology that they really didn't realize. Um, Finding all of the families, unfortunately, many schools were not able to to make contact with every one of their students and their families during that time. Um, So there was just this real, you know, quick need to logistically um, contact everybody, make sure everybody had all the resources that they, that they needed. And then from there, um, they really started to be concerned about instruction and what instruction was going to look like. How were they going to provide it in a way to students that would be workable for families, especially um, while parents are also still working and working at home. Many educators are parents too. So just how to how to do all of this in a way um, that's not too disruptive and that also meets the needs of the students um, academically. And then you know, on a, I think universally what I've heard, the biggest concern was mental health and just checking in to make sure that teachers were okay, that they weren't overly stressed, that families were okay. You know, People w- have been um, dying throughout this. So there's been a lot of trauma to educators and their families and to school communities. Um, And so I heard from many principals that they took their time together as a staff, not to talk about instruction, but just to say, how are you doing, to laugh together, um, to do teacher appreciation and really recognize the heavy lift that teachers were doing um, to very, very quickly move to a remote environment.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely something that we wanted to talk about as well, just because this had a big impact on education, but that's not the entire conversation here. You know, there's mental health socialization, access to food, that was affecting students and teachers during this time as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's another really big one that came up. So um, most school districts uh, very quickly created a way to get food to families, particularly for lunch. And there's something called free and reduced lunch that some families are eligible for. Um, during this time period, any, any family could come and access this food. And I um, was looking at one interview from a principal in a rural area talking about how hundreds of families actually came to the school on a regular basis to get food for not just their, their kid, but potentially for other members of the family as well. So that was a really big issue. And then yeah, the socialization piece, um, what, what a lot of teachers did was just created informal time for kids to log on and just talk with them, talk with their friends, do a show and tell or just find some way to connect um, because teenagers and younger kids were really feeling disconnected and scared. This is, um, you know, no, no, no group of kids alive right now have had to deal with anything like this. Um, and so I think there's a huge toll that it's taking on kids just trying
0: to figure out what they should be scared of, how scared and how to mitigate that fear. Looking ahead to the fall, have you seen any strategies that schools are using to bridge the equity gap or effectively teach online that you think um, is really forward thinking and could work out pretty well?
1: Yeah, um, I have heard more conversation about sort of breaking down some of the traditional structures of like we go to English class, we go to math class, we go to science class. There's an opportunity um, in this online environment to rely on things like gaming and all of these kind of innovative. Um, technological uh, tools that s- kids are very familiar with to kind of make learning more interesting. Um, so I have heard conversations about how to do that. Um, I think that in this time since you know I one thing I think is really important to think about is that in the spring of this last year that was crisis mode. So that all of a sudden teachers were moving to an online environment and they were having to learn really quickly. Well, we actually know a lot about how to teach online really well, and there are some benefits to it. I mean, you have to be really organized, you have to have clear objectives. I mean, there has to be, it really helps with planning um, and really thinking about the ultimate learning goals. And so, I think there's, time has allowed educators to learn all of that, and I think it's gonna look really different going into next year. They're gonna be prepared, they're gonna know all the tools, They're going to understand a little bit more about how you design online learning opportunities. And I think um, we're going to see really, probably very cool, innovative um, instruction going on. I think funding is a really important part of the conversation. There's been a lot of, um, I would use the word threats from the federal level that if you don't go back in person, you're not going to get funding. And I just read uh, like a super heartfelt, Um, opinion piece from a superintendent. There was a teacher in Arizona who passed away while teaching summer school because she got coronavirus even though she was in a classroom with two other teachers. There were no kids there. They were masked up using um, hand sanitizer, all of these things. She passed away and he was talking about how if the money that's if he doesn't go back to school in a face-to-face environment, the money they will pull from him in a pretty um, low-income community of Arizona could be enough to not allow the school to function. So he's stuck in this space between protecting um, his, his teachers and his kids because he's seen firsthand how quickly this virus can spread in a school environment without kids even being there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's really being put into this position that he has to, you know, decide: Do we have the money to function for the year, or do we put people at risk? And that's um, that's an unfair space to put people in. Many teachers, particularly in low-income communities and schools that don't have a lot of resources have trouble getting paper and pens and books. <laughs> and they're wondering how the school is really going to be able to afford all of the hand sanitizer and all of the cleaning supplies and all of the masks and all of those things that would be necessary, all of the temperature checks and all that, you know, that would really actually be necessary for people to be safe.
0: And like you said, this is unprecedented uh, for this group of kids. What long-term implications do you think this will have for them?
1: So, you know, that's, that's the big question, right? What will be the long-term implications? I have faith and, uh, that teachers and schools will be able to um, address a lot of the instructional needs that the students are going to have. I think that that's, um, that's something that uh, they have the, the means to do. And so we have that summer gap, they're aware of it, teachers are gonna approach it, they're gonna, they're gonna catch up, they're gonna learn, Um, and they're gonna be fine. I think what I've been hearing is that um, going back to school in this upcoming year, that they want to start with the social emotional piece. They wanna start with the mental health, with creating structures for community, especially as it's looking like the majority of large urban districts and many, many other districts are gonna be online, potentially, all of the upcoming 2020-21 school year, and so, Um, really at the top of their minds are how to create structures to connect kids to each other. In many districts, you have a decision between whether you're going to send them either face-to-face all the time or some of the time or whether you're going to keep them at home. And one of their biggest concerns is that they're going to fall behind. And I think in reality, well, what we learn in school is very important. I do think you can create that learning environment online. So as a college professor, I had to suddenly go, from face-to-face teaching, and I teach sometimes eight-hour days, teaching eight hours in a Zoom environment. And you know what? It worked out. We didn't like that we couldn't see each other, and there were some drawbacks, but in terms of what my students learned at the end of both I the spring and the summer quarter, they met all the learning objectives that I set out and when I would teach them face to face. So I do think it's very possible. Um, I think that it's going to require a lot of very creative thinking, um, particularly because there might be moving from remote to face to face and back again, and there could be um, a lot of changes over the course of the year. But I think kids are going to be fine. One concern that I do have, and this goes back um, in many ways to the summer slide, is I hear conversations about parents hiring tutors or babysitters or like or, you know, people to stay with their kids all day and help them with their work. Um, And I worry that we are gonna create an even greater, um, what we often refer to as opportunity gap um, between those students who have the resources um, to do those things and the students that don't. Um, And I think that's my really biggest fear. I think, um, you know, as long as you've got your kid engaged, and they're reading, and they're doing activities, and you've got their, their, you know, their minds moving on a regular basis, um, that's enough to probably um, you know, not really make them learn any less than they were learning before. But it's those situations where somebody's not able to work with a student and not able to help them with their work um, that really worries me the most.
0: I love what you mentioned, though, about how this could be an opportunity for schools to be more innovative and how like years down the road, when hopefully we have a vaccine and coronavirus is somewhat in our rearview mirror, hopefully, um, this could really have shaped and changed permanently like education, the education Mm -hmm. system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it could. And I've heard examples of like a, a teacher who created an entire, like almost Dungeons and Dragons. I know there's more modern versions of it, but an entire kind of imaginary world on the internet that he's teaching within. I mean, what a cool idea and something you could do in a classroom setting, but you have much more opportunity, I think, to tap into what interests kids, because in reality, our current generation, they're pretty hooked into the computer, the internet, um, and we don't want them sitting in front of a screen all day long, um, but I think there's unique opportunities available to really get creative. And I think when we're also thinking about small groups of students, when we could be doing a lot more, 10 kids go have a learning opportunity somewhere um, and then come back into a classroom. I mean, I just think we um, are being asked to meet some demands that might actually, in the long run, teach us some new things.
0: And you recently wrote an op-ed that was called, Could Coronavirus Change Our Obsession with School Testing and Accountability? So can you tell us a little bit more about why you think now is a good time to rethink this?
1: Yeah, well, so we've had a really big push um, for accountability and testing, and testing as a way to evaluate students and teachers and schools. Um, Since the passing of No Child Left Behind in the early 2000s, we've had 20 some years um, of that legislation and we haven't really found that this push to accountability is improving academic outcomes and certainly not improving engagement or happiness for teachers or students. So they couldn't do tests at the end of last year because um, of the the disruption to learning and I don't think that they're going to be able to probably do them at the end of this upcoming year either. Um, And so I think it's a really interesting opportunity to put a pause on the obsession with testing and really think about what are other ways we can evaluate if schools and students are doing well and if they're feeling successful. And I think there are more measures than just the test. And there's a a very large body of research that shows that testing really is just measuring your parental education level and how much money your family has. It's not actually a very good measure of what you know. Um, And I think this is just a great opportunity because the testing's not there, we have to rethink how we know if students are prepared or not. Um, and so it gives us an opportunity to really think more about formative assessments, to think about multiple measures
0: of learning, um, and to really reevaluate the approach that we've been taking. And there's been a lot of talk about the negative impacts that coronavirus has had on education, but in your opinion, what do you think the best thing has been to come out of this chaos for K-12 schools? So this is both, one of the things that's really been sitting with me a lot is I think that COVID has really helped
1: us to understand what some of the structural and institutional racism looks like in our country. And it's been found that COVID disproportionately affects communities of color in the United States. Prominent reasons are the type of jobs, more people of color are working in wage positions. Um, and we also know that people of color are disproportionately um, suffer from heart disease and diabetes, which are um, diseases that the coronavirus affects more aggressively. So these conditions are really linked to structural racism in our society. Schools are a microcosm of our society. So if communities are being disproportionately affected, the children are being disproportionately affected as well. And I really think between coronavirus and um, the George Floyd protests, really racial equity is at the forefront of people's minds. And schools, I mean, I think that the general public um, is entering a conversation that educational researchers and educational professionals have been having for a long time about the race, or the role that race plays in schooling, um, and the negative impacts of some of our systems. And I just think this is our opportunity to seize that attention, to seize that um, interest, and really, um, for the first time, uh, put some structures into place that really are anti-racist and that will um, provide better opportunities for our students of color in our school system. So to me, um, you know, that's both recognizing all of that is is you know uncomfortable and concerning and upsetting, but it's also an opportunity similar to testing for us to really take a look at what we're doing and how we can restructure it. Um, I was I was saying to um, my sister the other day, who has kids in the school system and was concerned about online learning, that you know there can be a kid sitting in a classroom that nobody notices isn 't engaging and isn't doing the work, but if they 're not logging on to a computer ever, then you really have to figure out where they are um, and find them and so in some ways, there might be students that were, were slipping through the cracks of this, of our system before that you know, we can't ignore at this point because if their face is not logging onto a computer ever, then we need to go find them and their family and get them logged on. Um, and I think that um, is becoming something that we're seeing is more of a, a community effort
0: as well. And that just sparked a thought for me too, because my sister is a teacher as well. And when we're talking about teachers in this conversation, in terms of the pandemic, where we hear a lot about the frontline workers, the people in the hospitals, but the teachers are really on the forefront of this for the students too. Can you just talk about what it is like to be a teacher during this time for them and having to go through all of this?
1: Yeah, well, I think what's been really hard um, for many teachers is they haven't had a break. So for many people, spring break got skipped. They've gone into the summer with all this uncertainty. And as a teacher, the summer is usually the time where you get a little you know, time to relax and take care of yourself, but also to start planning for the upcoming year. And with all this uncertainty, it's been really hard, I think, um, for them to know what the next move is, but at the same time, constant communication is coming in. And so they're never, it's, it's like they're working 24 like, seven, as if they weren't already. And I think that this really brings attention to the full spectrum of responsibilities of teachers. So teachers, first and foremost, are sort of there to instruct and to teach um, the standards and the curriculum they've been asked to teach, but they're also providing social-emotional support. They're watch- looking out for student well-being. Um, they're, you know, settling um, disputes between kids on a regular basis. They're watching out for what kids might have food insecurity. They're keeping kids safe while their parents are at work. So they have all these other roles that they pay, play in kids' lives and they're very aware they play those roles and they feel um, you know, a really big disconnect. If they had their way, every teacher would be back in a classroom with children. They wanna be able to hug a kid who's having a hard day. They wanna be able to interact with them face to face. And so the teachers that are pushing back on going back in person aren't doing it because they don't want to be back in school. That's what they want more than anything. Um, But they're being asked to put their own lives and the the safety of their families at risk um, for what, often can feel like economic reasons, and I think that's, you know, a really big ask of people.
0: To read Erin Anderson's recent op-eds on equity gap and testing, see our show notes at du.edu radioed. Be sure to subscribe and review our podcasts. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer and mixed our sound for this episode, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Milatello. And this is Radio Ed.